so for those of you that um, are unfamiliar with me and the work I do, my name is Dr. Martin Gonzalez. I'm an outpatient psychiatrist with the University of New Mexico Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, uh, where I work and wear multiple hats, uh, starting as medical director for the jail diversion and transition program. I also have an outpatient uh, psychiatric clinic at the uh, uh, University Psychiatric Center uh, Cope Clinic, where at this point, about 90, 95% of the patients I see um, are dual diagnosis uh, with intellectual dis and developmental disabilities and mental illness, uh, mostly severe mental illness. I also am a member of the TS project through the UNM uh, Department of Community and Family Medicine, where we do consultation services for the IDD population throughout the state of New Mexico, addressing a variety of, of complex situations. Um, and then uh, prior hats, I've done quite a bit of work um, with APD CIT unit, both in the field and, and on the educational side, um, where I, I served out on this team for about two years or so um, prior to taking on my, my current roles. Um, and I also provide clinical coverage for the psychiatric emergency services um, at UNM. Um, and doing all of that, I really don't sleep much. And so there's plenty of time for that when I'm dead, I guess. All right. And so some objectives for today's discussion. Um, so the big one is to understand uh, some of the different contributing factors to acute agitation in individuals with IDDMI. And so um, I'm going to use these terms interchangeably, but they're going to stand for intellectual and developmental disability with co-occurring mental illness. Um, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the process for a quick assessment of acute agitation and some things just to be mindful of as, as you're working with um, these individuals in your day-to-day -day, um, calls and, and the dispatches for, for a variety of things that may come across. Um, and, and I want to discuss a little bit about the strategies of de-escalation um, and really putting an emphasis on, a, on three cases um, that I want to start with and, and think about these kinds of things as we discuss these cases. Um, I have no disclosures to go over and we're gonna dive right into it. Um, and so the format of today's conversation is I wanna start just with some preliminary cases. I've de-identified these. These are real um, cases that I either been um, consulting on or I've pulled directly from my clinical experience. Um, and so we're just gonna kind of go through the case. Some things I want you to think about is what information would you like to have? What additional information would you like to have? What questions might you ask if you were the responding officer to this scene? Um, and, and what information do you think might be helpful? Um, and think about how you would have approached this situation based on the information that you have initially. And then think about it again once we revisit the case follow-ups and how you may have changed your approach and what other techniques you may have implemented as the cases develop and as you learn more about the situation as, as it evolves. Um, and then we can discuss it as, as time allows at the end. Um, and so to begin, our first case is a 23-year-old individual with autism spectrum disorder, an unspecified anxiety disorder, an unspecified impulse control disorder, and intellectual disability. The chief complaint of this initial presentation is just a routine follow-up at the primary care physician's office. 
And so a little historical information. He's being followed by his PCP for obesity. He's gained um, 10 kilos in about 10 months. It's roughly about 22 uh, pounds and change with a BMI of over 37. He has a history of asthma that's induced by exercise um, that's pretty well controlled. Um, psychiatrically, the diagnosis I listed above, in addition to qualifying that his intellectual disability is quite severe, and there's a receptive and expressive language disorder where he has difficulty um, integrating and processing language and then communicating. And, and so he's primarily nonverbal, has a vocabulary of about five words or so, um, some rudimentary signs that his family is very good at interpreting. Um, but otherwise, that's kind of the extent of his, of his uh, communication skills at this point. And so some history relayed to the first responders at the, at the origination of this call. Um, so it comes out as a, a patient at a PCP office is agitated and assaulting several staff members, including um, us physically assaulting the physician. Um, property damage has now been done due to the patient banging their head into the wall, where they, they basically put their head right through the drywall. Um, and now the patient is injured with a laceration of unknown severity to the face after this individual charged the physician and ultimately ended up headbutting the frame of a door. Okay, so think about this case and some of those things I wanted you to, to consider. You know, what more do you need to know? How would you approach this situation if you're the first responder on scene? Um, and what ways may you may you try to de-escalate or intervene in the situation just with the information you have available to you? And so we're going to go on to case two and think about those same questions with the next two cases. Um, and so this particular case is a 32-year-old individual with autism spectrum disorder, intellectual disability, obsessive compulsive disorder, severe, and generalized anxiety disorder. The chief complaint on this one is a housemate of this individual was watching a movie in the common space, den or living room, um, where the movie had lots of scenes that were particularly violent, lots of emergency personnel in the movie, sirens, loud noises, explosions. This caused increased anxiety that evolved into agitation and then self-harm. Some history on this individual is a history of type 2 diabetes hypertension and hypogonadism resulting in hormone deficiencies um, and some development, physical developmental issues that are being treated appropriately. Psychiatrically is a history of autism spectrum disorder, a mild intellectual disability, um, generalized anxiety disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, and an unspecified psychotic disorder. And we're going to talk a little bit about this in, in, in this particular case. Um, and because there is a mild intellectual disability, uh, this individual's Communication is relatively robust. They're able to um, have and, 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 and be fairly involved in their own treatment planning um, and, and those kinds of conversations. They respond to de-escalation and so just some things to think about with a mild intellectual disability. And so this individual does have um, a, a fairly large vocabulary and, and, and can use it when they need it. And so the information relates to the first responders on the initial call out. Um, and so the patient is agitated, breaking property, including punching windows in the home. The patient has injured themselves with a severe self-inflicted laceration to the forearm, and they are now endorsing suicidal ideations. And so again, just kind of get those wheels turning and think about this case a little bit more in depth. And then our third case, before we dive into to some of the teaching points. 
And so this is a 52-year-old individual with intellectual disability and impulse control disorder, depression, and anxiety. The 911 call comes out as altered mental status. Some historical information, this individual has a history of hypothyroid or low thyroid function, chronic severe constipation and hypertension or high blood pressure. Psychiatrically, they have a history of depression, anxiety, intellectual disability severe with very, very limited uh, uh, language skills. Um, they have a vocabulary of two or three words, um, real basic sign language and uh, real difficult with processing um, language and communication. Also has a, a diagnosis of an unspecified psychotic disorder and an impulse control disorder. And so the information relayed directly to the first responders is patient is agitated, screaming, and attempting to swing at the care staff. The patient initially complained of abdominal pain and then began to bang their head against the floor. The patient is now more confused and not responding to directions. Okay. So again, think about some of those prompts we discussed. What would you like to know? What questions would you ask? And how would you try to de-escalate or intervene in this situation? And then we'll come back to this at the end of some of these talking points. Um, and I want to, to, to open the conversation to the group um, as we address some of those issues. Um, but first, think about autism spectrum disorder. And so what is autism spectrum disorder? And, and so this gets confused and, and, and often inappropriately, inappropriately so with an intellectual disability. And autism is not an intellectual disability. It is a neurodevelopmental disorder, and it's a disorder of social impairment. Right? Many individuals on the autism spectrum do not have an intellectual disability or you hold down graduate degrees and you know work you know white-collar jobs, those kinds of things. But the social disability is there, and right, they're kind of awkward to talk to and can't really read a room and those kinds of things. And so from the DSM directly, um, the criterion A is the impaired social interaction and social communication along with the presence of restrictive, repetitive interests, activities, or stereotypical behavior. What does that mean, right? Those fixed interests, that, that one or two topics that a person on the autism spectrum knows anything and everything about, right? They are the expert about whatever that particular interest is. The stereotypical behaviors is the stemming behaviors we see, the hand flapping, the toe walking, the rocking back and forth. These are kinds of things that are self-soothing um, and, and can actually be therapeutic if encouraged in the right setting. Um, and then, like we mentioned before, not all of those, especially those individuals with mild to moderate, previously called um, higher functioning uh, on the autism spectrum, tend not to have co-occurring intellectual disability. Um, where the mainstay of treatment, and, and it's important to remember that you're not treating autism specifically, right? Autism cannot be treated as a disorder. The disordered behaviors and the social interactions is what we're treating on in regards to our interventions. Um, those individuals who have, excuse me, lower cognitive reserve, who have significant intellectual disability, respond well to applied behavioral analysis. And this intervention has the most treatment um, evidence directly in regards to challenging behaviors, not necessarily autism specifically. And it's important to remember that you're not treating the disorder. And the goal of applied behavioral analysis is to reduce the challenging behaviors while learning new skills with the goal to improve the overall quality of life. The reason this treatment modality really isn't ideal for individuals without an intellectual disability 
is it's working on those cognitive skills. It's working on those basic activities of daily life, you know, hygiene, nutrition, you know, safety, and, and, and someone who doesn't have the intellectual disability, this kind of approach can actually be more frustrating and cause more social anxiety and cause more social disruption um, as if routine kind of socialization psychotherapy was was given to those folks without the co-occurring ID. And so that's where ABA is, is, is really um, valuable is if it is a co-occurring disorder that, that you're working with. And so what other co-occurring psychiatric disorders do we see in, in individuals, you know, with intellectual disability and also with autism spectrum disorder? Um, and, and the top three are ADHD, um, and that's where we, we really have a hard time identifying is it ADHD, is it an impulse control disorder, and that diagnosis really has to be flushed out very carefully. Mood disorders, depression, anxiety um, are the big ones, and then just basic anxiety disorders, generalized anxiety, panic disorder, um, those kinds of things that are we typically see. They may present very differently, and that's where we see the behavioral symptoms, the agitation, the aggression, the self-harm. Um, and when we think about autism in and of itself, um, about half of the individuals with autism spectrum disorder alone will also have a co-occurring psychiatric disorder. And this is not including intellectual disability. When you consider autism with intellectual disability, that's where you see the higher rates of challenging behavior than either diagnosis alone. For, for, for reasons that, that I think are, are, are a little bit more complex and, and, and uh, we don't have the time to address them right now at a neurological level, when you have an individual with sensory issues on top of a cognitive impairment where they have a hard time processing those sensory information um, signals and how to express their discomfort, that manifests in behavioral challenges. And so kind of keep those things in mind when, when you hear someone you're working with has these diagnoses occurring together. Um, those with prominent developmental dis delays tend to present more like younger children, right? And this is what we see in, in a toddler uh, who really doesn't have the language skills to talk about their sadness or their irritability or their frustration. And what does it look like? A temper tantrum, right? That's what we call it, the terrible twos. Well, so someone who is 35, but with a severe intellectual disability, may be functioning cognitively at the same level as a two or three-year-old. Mix that with the impulses of an adult, the drives of an adult, the strength of an adult, you can get a very complex behavioral picture, right? Amplify that with anxiety, depression, psychosis. These behaviors, these episodes of agitation are then going to be dialed up to the nth degree, depending on what's going on. Profound and severe intellectual disability is especially associated with repetitive behaviors, social aloofness, and the, and the absence of speech. Right, because these individuals at a basic neurological level don't have the machinery to process language, to process information. And so it comes out in a very primitive way in regards to their distress and their discomfort. And so they will communicate pain and anxiety the same way by banging their head against the wall, for example. And so it's important to distinguish what is the origin of this behavior rather than focusing on, on the behavior. And this is where the diagnosis of bipolar disorder is just kind of thrown around willy-nilly. Someone's having mood swings, someone's kind of labile and dysregulated, they must be bipolar without any clear history of mania, without any clear history of kind of grandiosity and, and all the typical things that we need for bipolar one disorder. Um, and so this is effective dysregulation and it's treated with mood stabilizers, high dose antipsychotics, and often with very little response. And what we do is, is 
we take a step back, look at the diagnosis of bipolar, look at the behaviors, and try to find the cause of these behaviors and then treat that appropriately. Is it environmental? Is it medical? Is it an anxiety disorder that's causing dysregulation? You treat the anxiety and then you can stop all the mood stabilizers and antipsychotics. Um, and that's where the nuances of, of working with these individuals takes time, um, experience to, to really get a sense of what you're seeing in front of you. And so anxiety disorders, and this is the big one. Um, anxiety can present with aggression, right? Because this is the fight or flight response. Um, and it's often amplified by poor sleep, right? If someone's already feeling kind of anxious and irritable and, and maybe a little scared or hypervigilant and they're not sleeping well, they become more dysregulated. The stress of just not having a good night's sleep just cranks up the heat, cranks up the heat. And then you see the psychomotor agitation and aggression as a way to communicate distress, a way to communicate anxiety without the ability of using, you know, the, the language skills that many of us take for granted on, on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, fear is the big one. And fear is a, is a universal expression. Regardless of cognitive ability, you can recognize when someone is scared just by the look on their face. And the other way around too, right? It's a very primal reaction. And so if they see fear on another individual they're working with, they see discomfort, they can integrate that information very quickly. Now, folks on the autism spectrum, maybe not so much, right? Because it's that social reciprocity and that social communication that's lacking. But individuals with intellectual disability who are not on the autism spectrum have these social skills and can recognize these very primal and primitive emotions in others and in themselves as well. Um, and so similar to children, think about how they express fear and anxiety, crying, screaming, tantrums, clinging behavior, grabbing on to mom or dad, right? Individuals who are adults and intellectually disabled will grab onto their caregivers, latch onto their housemates, become extra clingy, not want to leave the environment, not want to leave the home, have selective mutism, right? You meet this individual and they don't say a word. Do you assume they're nonverbal or are you a stranger and they just don't want to talk to you because they don't feel comfortable with you, right? And so it's hard to get information out of them. You know, are they overestimating the amount of danger they're in. We saw this a lot with COVID, um, where individuals were going to dayhab programs and going out in the community. All of a sudden, we're told the world is a very dangerous place, and you got to cover your mask and slather on hand sanitizer from head to toe and, you know, spray cleaner on everything. You can't go to the pool. You can't go to dayhab. You can't talk to your friends that you were hanging out every, every week and playing basketball with. Okay, the world's a dangerous place. And so they act in kind. And now that we're transitioning back out, where for the last two years, they're getting these messages, all these places are dangerous, you could potentially get sick and die. Well, now we're telling them it's okay. The mask comes off. Now they're like, well, you need to go to Dayhab. And then they act out. And the question is, well, why are they acting out? Why do they punch a staff member if they try to take him to a community center where two years ago, they told them they could die if they went to this community center? Right. And so without the cognitive ability to really make the nuanced assessment of the dangers of the world, everything is going to be overtly dangerous, overtly traumatic. And so they're going to react in kind. And so it's important to get a sense of how they've been living and what kind of environment they've been exposed to prior to the incident of agitation. Right. Is this a response because they've been conditioned to react a certain way and now everything's changed and we're expecting a different reaction and they haven't had time to acclimate, right? These are individuals that typically do not do well with change. And many of us have struggled with the changes over the last two years. These folks, much more so, much more so. 
And that's where that collateral information is really going to be key. Get as much information from as many people involved in this person's life as possible. Friends, neighbors, caregivers, if you can get a hold of physicians and, and their specialty providers, um, anyone who can give you any semblance of what they are like at their baseline. What is this individual like when they're doing well on their best day? And what are they like on their worst day? And where do they fall in between? Right? Or is this something completely new and you got to figure out what's going on? Um, what are the behaviors look like when they're anxious, when they're hungry, when they're in pain, when they got a toothache? You know, are these different or do they all look the same? Because that's really going to affect where this individual ends up in regards to going to a psych emergency, medical emergency, staying home, or maybe a, a follow-up visit or something like that. Um, and so those kinds of nuanced approaches are really going to be key to working with someone who's extremely anxious and doesn't have the cognitive abilities to communicate that to you. Other things to consider. Um, in the general population, 2% of individuals out there have an intellectual disability of some kind. Many of them are living independently, just kind of right on the margin, don't really qualify for DD waiver services, but can't really, you know, understand the nuances of spending money or, you know, making appropriate interpersonal connections. And so these are a very vulnerable population that are frequently exploited, victimized, taken advantage of. Um, and then individuals with autism accounts for another 3% of the population. Right? And people who just may be kind of socially awkward and weird, but living a typical kind of day-to-day -day life, all the way to individuals who are nonverbal and cannot tolerate any kind of sensory stimuli at all and results in pretty severe behaviors, even with the slightest touch or you know, change in temperature, those kinds of things. Um, and then when you consider them both, of those individuals with autism, about a quarter to a third have co-occurring intellectual disability of some kind. Um, and that lies also on a spectrum. Um, and, and we take into account IQ, um, functional skills abilities, and those kinds of things when we're um, uh, really doing a generalized assessment of these individuals. Um, and kind of going back to, to the autism, and when we think about treatment interventions, we will have more success if we conceptualize our interventions within the frame of autism, within the frame of, of the social communication deficits and how do we adapt to that, right? Because an individual with autism, if they don't have an intellectual disability, may have had some socialization training when they were younger, may have had that kind of integration skills development when they were younger. They may have not. And, and, and how is that going to impact their interaction with you? When you arrive on scene, you know, are there going to be lights and sirens and all kinds of chaos and commotion and strangers and things like that? That's a lot for, for a normal, typical individual to take in. Imagine an individual who's overwhelmed by, by the sensory stimuli, who has a cognitive um, uh, disability, you can't really process what's going on and why are all these strangers coming and talking to me and asking me 50 million questions. And so identifying a key person to make that initial contact, to reduce the environmental stress, the noise, the lights, all those things that may contribute to the agitation. Take those into account when you're working with an individual like this. Um, and also, if you're the first responder on scene, um, and in many rural situations, law enforcement is the first arriving, even within the metro areas. Is this a medical emergency, right? Because individuals with autism and intellectual disability tend to have higher rates of medical comorbidities. They tend to be more medically fragile and frail as a general rule. Often have chronic GI disease, chronic incontinence, chronic sleep disorders, chronic lethargy, and chronic eating disorders. And are these contributing factors to the current presentation of agitation and aggression? And if so, 
transport in the back of a police car to PES probably isn't the best thing for them. These folks need to go buy EMS to a medical facility and have a thorough medical evaluation to rule out those contributing factors to their current presentation. You know, are they septic? Are they delirious? Is there an acute infection? And the only way that gets communicated by some kind of aggression, self-injury, or agitation in, in the group home or community setting. And then the consequences from underlying anxiety, right? Because these individuals tend to get less robust medical and psychiatric services, anxiety in and of itself can be a risk factor for developing high blood pressure, right? All those stress hormones, all that cortisol, all those catecholamines just surging through the system um, raises blood pressure. It's a chronic inflammatory process. It increases the risk of coronary artery disease, increases the risk from sudden cardiac death, from death from stroke, um, and then the sequelae of, of, of these diseases over the long term in regards to vascular injuries to the brain, worsening their cognitive um, uh, disorders. Um, people with Down syndrome in particular are incredibly vulnerable for early onset of Alzheimer's, even as young as 30 years old in, in some of these folks, who receive profound cognitive changes and, and the dementia can progress fairly rapidly. And so because of all of this, um, health outcomes for these individuals are among the worst. Um, and they are twice as likely to die from preventable diseases. Um, they tend to get less preventative care. Medical diagnoses tend to be delayed until they are in the later stages of disease or when they get into the emergency room setting because things have de delayed so long is now an acute medical emergency. Um, because the behavioral issues, right? These folks have no real, and, and, and these aren't generalizations true for everyone, but by and large, have issues with boundaries, with personal space. Right. COVID is another big challenge, trying to get them to understand why they need to wear a mask in a medical setting, right? Someone who has a sensory issue to start with and can't tolerate the feel of this kind of restrictive device on their face. Many of those folks just kind of fell off the radar and didn't get any follow-up preventative um, or emergent treatment during the, the course of the pandemic, just because the fear on the receiving end, and granted, there was a lot that's unknown in regard to this virus, and, you know, kind of requirements for masking and telehealth and all these things that were really challenging for these individuals at baseline became so much more challenging with the additional social changes that came with it. But then consider a trauma history, right? Um, and so trauma, trauma, trauma is something we always spoke on. Trauma-informed care um, is, is really taking the forefront of how we approach not only mental health and behavioral health in general, but this particularly vulnerable population. Um, and, and this is another bigger issue that, that I think is more complex than, than we have time for today. But historically, the DD waiver in New Mexico is the result of the Jackson class lawsuit. Um, and these are institutional abuses that were occurring as recently as the 1980s in New Mexico, um, where the survivors of that lawsuit were, were the victims of horrendous institutional abuse and neglect um, at, at the Los Lunas School in the Fort Staten um, School in, in Southern New Mexico. And, and as a result, we have the community system. Um, and so we have those, those institutional traumas. We have medical trauma. Um, and it's hard to diagnose um, because of the, their, their limited vocabulary, their limited um, uh, understanding of, of, you know, the triggers and, and what their experiences may be, the psychological limitations and, and the behavioral regression that, that comes with this, right? Um, just think about the medical trauma alone, someone who has a genetic syndrome, 
with or without an intellectual disability, those early years of life, in and out of the hospital, multiple medical procedures, doctors and nurses poking and prodding at them, taking you know blood samples every day, just walking into a clinic by itself with that kind of trauma can contribute to an exaggerated response. Seeing a needle on a table, seeing you know a, a lab tube on a, on a bench can cause such a negative reaction just from the traumatic experience, you will see these kinds of episodes of agitation. Um, and then when in all medical settings, individuals with intellectual disability tend to get less curious medical exams where the symptoms that they're seeing during that particular visit are frequently directly attributed to either the cognitive impairment or written off as a quote-unquote behavioral issue without really getting curious and exploring the underlying cause. Um, and I want to reiterate this over and over and over again. It's important to understand the reason for the behavior before trying to just eliminate that behavior. Right? Because if this behavior is unrecognized as a medical emergency, the cause of death and morbidity goes up the longer and longer intervention is delayed. And so some pearls for assessment. And this is really, if you take anything away from today's talk, this is going to be the bare bones of it. And these are the core things I really want you to take away. Is this symptom or behavior new? What was the timing? Did it just come out of the blue? Has this been building for several days? Have they been noticing subtle escalations in behavior? Are they acutely confused and agitated? Is it waxing and waning? You know, what does that time frame look like? And then think. Medical versus environmental, right? Is it due to pain, discomfort? An individual with an abscessed tooth who can't really communicate that may localize to that part of their body and start hitting it over and over again in an effort to reduce that pain and draw attention to the discomfort. Are they delirious? Did they develop a obstruction in their colon? Or are they septic from a UTI that just kind of went on unrecognized? And now they're fevers through the roof, their vital signs are unstable, and their mental status is waxing and waning from the acute delirium. And when you provide a medical intervention, usually antibiotics or other treatment modalities, that will resolve. Is it a seizure? Many of these individuals have underlying seizure disorders, um, or is it a nuanced seizure? Is it a febrile seizure if, you're, if, you, if it's a kiddo? Um, many adults will have febrile seizures because they're so medically fragile. And what we call the post-ictal period, that period immediately following the seizure activity, even in neuro neurotypical individuals can present with severe agitation and aggression just because the brain is acutely inflamed. There's a lack of oxygen to, to that brain tissue and you've now activated that flight or fight response. And so they're not really responding to external stimuli. It's just an artifact of the overactivity of the brain secondary to that seizure. Was a new medication prescribed? You know, benzodiazepines, antidepressant medications in this population can often have the opposite effect where an individual become disinhibited and dysregulated just with the onset of this medication or whether there, was there a dose adjustment? Right. Um, are they confused? Was the antipsychotic a dose too high and now they're kind of lethargic and not breathing appropriately? Are they kind of twitching and having some abnormal reaction to that medication? Or is it purely environmental? Right? Is there a new staff member in the house? Are they kind of testing limits and kind of seeing what they can get away with? Is there a personality clash with the housemate and they just don't like the housemate? Is the housemate really disruptive and kind of dysregulated in them themselves? And are they kind of mimicking and, and copying this behavior? Or is the new housemate amplifying and they're just kind of feeding off each other? Was there a loss? 
you know, we saw a lot of loss in, 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 in over the last two years. Staffing became issues. Um, caregivers who themselves had their own vulnerabilities to, to respiratory diseases could no longer work with individuals they had been working with for decades sometimes, right? And the loss of these relationships and these interactions is profound, especially if they can't communicate that or we don't really appreciate how they're grieving these changes in their life. Family crisis, you know, mom and dad visit the group home every week like clockwork. All of a sudden, boom, mom and dad can't come around anymore. Something happened. Grandma got sick and they had to leave the state. COVID came and mom and dad can't come into the house because they're not allowed to, right? Um, and they don't really understand why. So these crises can, can really manifest in severe episodes of agitation. This does not require a psychiatric intervention. This does not require hospitalization. This does not require medication adjustments. These are environmental and behavioral changes that can be addressed directly within the home setting. Or is it a sensory issue, right? Um, you know, is fireworks going off on the 4th of July? Is the clothes too restrictive? Or do they need pressure to be reassured and self soothed Do they need a weighted blanket? You know, do they, can they tolerate brushing teeth and a new staff member is trying to push the issue that they need to brush their teeth and they're not doing it in the right way. So they act out and lash out, you know, in, in kind. And so you kind of think about these things and where do these fall when you're interacting with these individuals, especially if you're first on scene or trying to determine, do you need to dispatch rescue to do a medical evaluation when you first get there? Um, you know, do, does this person need to go to X, Y facility or stay in the home? Um, all these kinds of things should be given consideration when you're working on that decision tree. And then differentiating a mental illness from a behavioral issue. Um, and, and this, we even find ourselves falling into this in, in psychiatry, where a, excuse me, a mental illness is an innate unique differences in how the mind works, right? These are neurochemical processes, and that's what our medications are doing. They're balancing the neurochemistry at, at a very basic level, right? This will cause alterations in brain function. You will see this in multiple settings. If someone's psychotic, they're not only psychotic at home, they're psychotic at Walmart, they're psychotic at the doctor's office, they're psychotic in the inpatient psych unit, right? And so in order to treat these, we must modify the brain function with our medications, neuromodulation, things like ECT and, and the like, or is it a behavioral expression, right? And behaviors are learned, and these are patterns that are in response to some external or internal stimuli. Our habits, you know, have they been socialized to take on new habits and trying to re-socialize them to build new habits? And that can cause some challenging behaviors. Are they mannerisms? And this is just kind of the way, you know, a nervous tick is a, a stereotypical stemming type behavior consistent with autism. And that particular caregiver is just unfamiliar with it in this individual. Or is this a response to stress? And this is how they've been socialized growing up. Um, and, you know, maybe a family handles stress one way and another family handles stress another way. Um, and you take that individual out of that familial setting and put them in a group home. And the way they've been socialized to manage a crisis or a stress isn't what's acceptable or kind of understood in the new environment. And so this can be contributed or attributed to a behavioral change. Um, and then always remember all mind-brain experiences, and this is true for everyone, are expressed through behavior and communication. And so they're going to communicate at the level that they cognitively can, and everything else will manifest as a behavior. Um, and so when you see these things, just consider all of these in, in your kind of nuanced assessment. It's also follow up from the case, and, and we can discuss these more in detail um, after uh, we, we wrap it up here. But for our, our case number one um, in the primary cares office, 
Things continued to escalate. Security was ultimately called. Law enforcement arrived with emergency medical personnel at the clinic where the patient remained agitated. It was determined that this was an environmental stimuli. Um, ultimately, what was revealed is the primary care physician um, in, in discussions with the patient's care team decided that they wanted to get some blood work done um, during that visit. Um, they had felt that the patient had been given prophylactic uh, sedatives ahead of time, a dose of a Valium, Benadryl, um, and, and lorazepam um, in an effort to reduce his anxiety. Um, things were going well. The patient was placed on the medical exam table, um, placed a weighted blanket over their, their chest. Um, but when that needle went into his arm, all bets were off at that point, just from the, the sensory stimuli where this patient kicked the mother in the face, kicked his sister in the caregiver, and headbutted the physician several times prior to, uh, you know, escalating. The situation was de-escalated by clinical staff. However, the arrival of um, security and then EMS personnel um, created more stimuli in the environment, and that flared up his level of agitation again, where he did have to go um, to the psychiatric emergency services, ultimately ending up in four-point physical restraint, requiring multiple emergency medications, um, was monitored for several hours. They were eventually able to give the appropriate wound care, um, and once he was able to calm down, was discharged home with the family. Um, and so that was something that was iatrogenic and caused specifically by the medical provider's intervention. Could that have been averted? Maybe, it just kind of depends on how much prep time they had. The second situation where this individual, because of his obsessive compulsive disorder, fixates on things like emergency personnel and emergency situations, get, and, and some of the folks in this room may recognize some of the details of this particular case, where he then will start self-harm in an effort to get more emergency personnel involved in the situation. This individual has lacerated his arm to the bone on several occasions, uh, requiring you know, fairly significant um, uh, medical intervention. He was ultimately treated appropriately at the medical ER. His wound care was done. He received uh, sutures on his forearm and then was admitted to the psychiatric hospital for medication adjustment, targeting his obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, where the confusion was in regards to his psychotic diagnosis is he describes his intrusive thoughts in a way that's often misinterpreted as auditory hallucinations, where he believes and, and feels that when he thinks about medical personnel, EMS, law enforcement, that something, quote unquote, tells him he has to harm himself in order to get those people engage with him so he can interact. And then just by having that interaction with first responders reduces his level of anxiety, but then it's reinforcing and causes him to engage in these cycles over and over again. And so what these are is actually intrusive thoughts and it's his own internal monologue rather than auditory hallucinations that are command in nature. Um, and so this individual is, is not psychotic and is actually his description of his own internal experience that was misdiagnosed as an underlying psychotic disorder. Okay. Our third individual, which was ultimately a tragic case, um, ultimately when EMS arrived, they found this individual unresponsive with pupils fixed and dilated, um, without a pulse and with no respirations and was pronounced dead on the scene. But ultimately, and again, this is still being investigated, um, but based on conversations with the medical providers, uh, the current theory is this individual developed uh, a case of severe constipation 
um, that progressed into an acute uh, bowel obstruction and in their distress was unable to communicate that effectively. They started to headbang. And this is typical behavior for them when they're even anxious, right? This individual has a long history of headbanging, self-injurious behavior, assaultive behavior. Um, but ultimately, they banged their head hard enough to cause a sheer injury, and they subsequently died from an acute hemorrhagic stroke. Um, and, and herniation of the brainstem, just based on the clinical description, because the blunt force trauma that they were self-inflicting. Um, and then, you know, blood builds up in the brain cavity, they herniate the brainstem, cause the fixation of the pupils, the lack of respirations, and then, and then the pulse. Um, EMS did note that their abdomen was severely distended and rigid when they did do the assessment when they arrived on scene. Um, and so that's what led us to believe that the bowel obstruction was the inciting factor for this one. And then here are some resources I'd like to share with you all. Um, so we have the UNM Continuum of Care, um, where I'm a active member of the Adult Special Needs Clinic. Um, and then they also have the Developmental Disabilities and Mental Illness Clinics. And so these are clinics um, that we provide as a consultation service throughout New Mexico, uh, where we evaluate individuals with complex um, medical and psychiatric issues and provide recommendations to their established providers. Um, the really useful part of this particular website is they have a large library of continuing education information, um, reading material, lots of good videos that cover every and all topics about intellectual and developmental disabilities, medical, behavioral, and systems issues. Um, good resource to, to just kind of learn more about this population. Um, and so there's just tons of stuff there. Some of that stuff's available for continuing education credits if it applies to your, your particular licensure. Um, another organization I work with is the uh, UNMTS, or the Transdisciplinary Evaluation and Support Clinic to the Department of Family Medicine. This group is a direct result of the Jackson class lawsuit in an effort to provide additional consultation services to those involved in community care, where, again, we travel throughout New Mexico with a much larger team um, with multiple disciplines across the, the health and allied health professionals, where we review not only medical and psychiatric issues, we also address complex systems issues, DD waiver applications, diagnostic clarifications, and those kinds of things, um, and then relay those recommendations to the appropriate stakeholders. Um, as part of my work through TASC, I am also able to provide technical assistance um, to community uh, providers, family members. Um, and so for you individuals, if you have uh, questions about a particular person you're working with, my email's up there, feel free to shoot me an email. I'm more than glad to answer questions or at the very least point you in the direction where you can get those questions answered or those resources accessed um, if they're available uh, in the community. And then a list of references and uh, questions. So let me stop my share. Okay. There we go. Um, and so I'd like to open it up to the group. Um, what are your thoughts about these three cases and how would you approach them? What questions would you have asked? Um, and how would you have intervened if, if you were the first officer on scene um, or, or working with this individual? Or was there information about um, these particular cases or in general that, that you'd like to discuss further? Thanks, uh, Dr. Gonzalez, for that wonderfully informative uh, uh, didactic. Now, this has been with APD. I think, especially like in the first and the third case, what really struck me is how maddening it must be to not be able to communicate effectively with the outside world. And 
And I think most officers would sort of let empathy help guide that interaction. Um, uh, but also, you know, safety is, is always our first concern. Um, and it, the first the first case really sounds like a nightmare for first responders with communication being so limited with the individual. I think as as a first responder, the, the number one question I want answer, but it, you know, is everybody safe at the moment? And then is third party folks going to be there when I get there? Uh, because it sounds like they're probably the only way I'm going to be able to communicate with this individual is from their family who has learned how to do that. And so that's probably one of the questions I would ask as a first responder. But again, like just having some empathy for these folks who, you know, you know, this, this, the third case may have lost his life because of his inability to communicate his medical stuff. It really strikes home with me. And I think especially now more and more police training is centered on using empathy to help guide that interactions as long as you're being safe and the public is safe. So I think that would probably be my approach. But in the first case, I, I definitely want to know if there's third party folks who are going to be there and be able to communicate with me and help communicate with the individual. And then to expand on, on that comment about third party, and I intentionally left this piece off of this case, is third party was there, mom and, and adult sister were there who were primary caregivers. Their communication to the medical providers, to all the first responders was all in English. Turns out the primary language at home was Spanish. Um, and this individual only understood words in Spanish. And so once that was recognized and, and the medical providers, both at the psych emergency services um, and, and the first responders, a very, very observant first responder um, had noticed the crosstalk between mom and sister in Spanish. And the, the individual appeared to be tracking that conversation started communicating in Spanish, and then we started seeing some de-escalation and how they were responding to real basic instructions given to them in Spanish. And so that's a, a really important thing to, to be aware of is, you know, are there communication challenges or is this just a language barrier, right? And how do we address that? Um, or use the family, it's not ideal as that go-between. Um, and, and so that, that I, I really wanted to kind of leave that out intentionally to generate some thought, but that, that was a really key piece of information that, that was missed, I think, in the early parts of, of this, this, uh, this case. Thanks. Um, other comments, questions for Dr. Gonzalez? I actually had one other question. You mentioned, I think it was the second case where there was a, a case of extreme OCD that they started that person or changed their medication to treat the OCD. What kind of medications are used in, in treatment of that particular diagnosis? Typically antidepressants. Um, uh, there, there's some evidence for, for various types of antidepressants working better than others. Um, but it takes fairly robust doses to get the effect that, that we're looking for. Um, at the same time, we kind of got to address the underlying anxiety and the agitation. And so that's where the anxiolytic medications, uh, benzodiazepines, sometimes antipsychotics will have a role, but they're not really going to treat the underlying OCD. Um, but those antidepressant medications, you know, will take, uh, you know, several weeks uh, with each dose adjustment to, to show a response. And then there's this individual because he had a mild intellectual disability and um, relatively intact uh, communication skills. 
was able to participate in other behavioral interventions um, and ways to reduce their level of anxiety and agitation and, and control the environment in a way that they were able to manage their intrusive thoughts. Um, and because of that, their medication regimen was, was ultimately simplified. As, and, um, and so this is an individual I work with in the outpatient setting and, and we're really trimming the fat in regards to, to their medication regimen because they, the psychosocial interventions and, and the psychotherapeutic interventions have been so effective for them. That's good to hear, thank you. Other questions, comments from the network? Yeah, when it comes to the slide, uh, differentiating between mental illness and the behavior expression, can the expression be dictated by the mental illness or is it, or is the behavioral expression set in stone as just as how they're wired? Is it influenced by the mental illness? Um, yeah, that, that's my question. Well, absolutely, it can be influenced by the mental illness um, and, and how they're responding to the stress. Is it, you know, an anxiety response and, you know, have they been socialized to, to respond to anxiety in kind? We often see co-occurring psychotic disorders. And so sometimes, you know, are they having command hallucinations or some kind of psychotic experience and then responding to that? Now, the behavioral response to that stimuli may be similar. You know, anxiety, psychosis and pain may all result in self-harming, but that's where it's important to really flesh out what's triggering the behavior, not necessarily the behavior itself. And so it, there's a big gray area in between, but the two are, are intimately connected. Excellent question. Uh, other questions, thoughts? I had a question or a thought, one or the other. You know, what was the, the movie with um, Dustin Hoffman? You know, the, Grain Man. The Grain Man. Break in routine, is that a thing that can, I know that it can cause a meltdown, but how frequently and how violently can, and how subtle can just a break in routine cause a, a meltdown for someone with ASD? It, it depends if there's any underlying intellectual disability, right? So if they're co-occurring, the risk of a behavioral issue goes up, you know, that much more. Um, and it depends on what in that routine was broken, right? Um, is it be, they don't get to go to dayhab because they get to go to the doctor's office today may cause a mild outburst, some protesting, you kind of treat with a prophylactic medication, um, or is it the complete shutdown of their entire social world, right? Um, and so this is where, where in, in my, and this is all anecdotal, and, and I don't have the hard data to, to support this yet. Um, but through the course of the pandemic, we've been noticing some trends, both in the outpatient and, and, and the emergency setting, where early on, those individuals who had a very regimented day-to-day um, -day schedule did not tolerate the lockdowns well. And we saw an acute spike in, in the number of individuals presenting to the emergency services with behavioral dysregulation. They kind of acclimated and then you know, they, they, they returned to baseline. The other group was individuals who were kind of a challenge to get engaged in those, those services initially um, and really tended to prefer being at home. Um, and so they adjusted well initially, but then the cabin fever set in and kind of being in a group home with two or three, four other individuals who are also kind of behaviorally struggling um, and may have a variety of cognitive and medical issues 
Staff ratios really started to drop throughout the course of the pandemic for a variety of reasons. And so we saw a second spike in these individuals where the novelty of being able to sleep in and kind of goof off and spend a lot of time on Zoom really starts to wore off. And then we started seeing more interpersonal conflict. Um, and that's why they were kind of adjusting to that change. And then now at the tail end, God, I hope this is the tail end, um, that getting them reintegrated into community programs, going back out into social settings without masks is causing increased levels of anxiety, right? Because we've been communicating to many of these folks that the world is now super dangerous and just the air is gonna kill you, right? And if you have a difficult time processing that, getting back out into those environments is causing increased anxiety. And now we're seeing behavioral challenges with folks as they reintegrate back into their previous activities. Um, and so it's, it really depends on what that routine was and where the change happened. Um, but absolutely, it can cause a major meltdown. <laughs>